2: Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This podcast has some of our favorite interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor along with Romaine Bostic and Caroline Hyde. What'd you miss? It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. Crypto platforms are having to adjust to the prospect of regulation, and Binance.us is staffing up accordingly. The cryptocurrency exchange just hired Manuel Alvarez as its chief administrative officer. Alvarez previously served as the commissioner of the California Department of Financial Protection and Innovation. So we got some insight into the decision from Binance.us CEO Brian Brooks, who is a former bank regulator himself. Bloomberg Wall Street correspondent Sonali Basik joined us for the interview, and we started by asking Brian how he is looking to maneuver the regulatory concerns that exist both in the U.S. and globally.
3: First of all thanks so much for having me these are really really important questions and i guess i quibble a little bit with the premise and the premise seems to be that regulation is bad for crypto or it's scary for crypto truth is we're in a transition point where the number of people participating in this market has gotten so big that you need basic frameworks and that's actually a sign of the maturity and the growth of the market more than it is a sign of something bad what i think it does mean though is that exchanges like ours you know the biggest exchanges in the world need to be very sophisticated about how do you allow to occur, how do you bring these assets to the market while ensuring good risk management, compliance with law, the disclosure of what you're selling to your customers and those kinds of things. And that's why we're so excited about bringing the former California Financial Institutions Commissioner Manny Alvarez on board. We need people with those kinds of backgrounds who have been policymakers in senior roles to help us navigate these shoals. And I think the successful companies are going to see that and try to compete for that kind of talent.
2: Brian, can you sort of clarify the relationship for viewers between Binance US and Binance Globally, which is the world's uh, biggest <laughs> crypto exchange, by far? I know that this sort of uh, it's a um, there's they're separate legal entities, but can you explain like how are you owned by them or what is the what is the relationship?
3: Yeah, so we're not owned by them at all. Binance.com doesn't own a single share of, of Binance US. We share a common founder. And uh, historically, Binance U.S. licensed the name and some technology from Binance.com. The way to think about it really is that a couple of years ago, it was clear that the world was segmenting into two basic kinds of markets. You had most of the world, which was still learning about crypto, didn't have crypto uh, you know, licenses or requirements. And then you had an emerging part of the developed world that started putting crypto within a regulatory framework. We were founded precisely to be a regulatorily compliant licensed exchange. So we've got 43 uh, US states that allow us to trade in their borders based on licenses and other, other uh, legal compliance mechanisms that we have. We'll eventually have all 50 state licenses. And then of course, there are other parts of the world served by a different company. But other than licensing the name and licensing the technology, mm-hmm. we operate independently. We have a separate board of directors. We have a separate ownership you <laughs> And, uh, you know, you might think about us as essentially a Binance branded exchange that's doing our own business here. They're the biggest in the world. We're yeah. the eighth biggest in the world. Different
4: companies. All right. So we got the brand here in the U.S. Uh, now, Brian. Uh, I, when we talk about the U.S. regulation or lack of it, and I, I'm curious as to your thoughts as to why it's moved, been so slow uh, to see something a little bit more formative out mm-hmm. of uh, the SEC and the other regulators here, uh, whether it's setting up guardrails, whether it's approving ETFs, they, they're just just doesn't seem to be uh, any real momentum, at least not uh, I can see publicly.
3: But, well, Romain, that is a great comment. And I think, honestly, it says more about the U.S. regulatory system than it says about crypto, to be honest. Part of it is, you know, in this country, we set up a lot of different regulators and gave them each their share of turf. So the issue is, and I, and I know this having having run one of these agencies, there's a little bit of inherent turf conflict between, you know, the Fed and the OCC or the SEC. And the CFTC, everybody's trying to grab a little bit of turf. And because of that, it's hard to get clarity. If you look at a country like the United Kingdom, where there's basically a single regulator for the entire financial system, that's the Financial Conduct Authority, it's a lot easier to get clarity. Over here, you've got competition among agencies. There's overlap in their jurisdiction. And so at some level, it's tough to deal with. But I will say, we're not as far behind as people might think. I mean, at the end of the last administration, all of the major regulators, myself included, got together through the president's working group on financial markets and started providing some clarity on certain crypto assets like stable coins. And I think that's an example of how our regulatory system can adapt if all the regulators work together.
2: I mean, question about uh, decentralized finance, DeFi tokens and so forth. Are some of these de facto equities and are trading as such?
3: Yeah, I, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, there, there certainly there are decentralized exchanges that are selling crypto tokens, you know, without the intermediary of a broker, and you know, some crypto tokens, to Romain's point, are classified as securities, and some are not classified as securities. So it depends a little bit on what's being traded. I think the main takeaway for DeFi for people who are new to the concept is just the idea that usually in this country we're used to paying middlemen a fee for the privilege of buying stocks and bonds or saving in a savings account or whatever, right? So we pay a fee to a bank or a fee to our stockbroker to do that for us. And the purpose of DeFi is to eliminate the middleman and make this stuff cheaper. But if the underlying thing is regulated, as I've said before, the underlying activity should be regulated as well.
4: Brian, you were a primary banking regulator in the Mm. United States, and now you're a company that uh, is more on the DeFi side of things, right? So how concerned should the banking industry be concerned about DeFi at the end of the day? At what point uh, does it start to be a threat?
3: Well, you know, to me, it depends on whether the banking industry adapts as it always has or whether somehow it treats this as different. If you think about it, if you go back 30 years, banks used to be really threatened by money market mutual funds. Later, they were uh, very concerned about index funds that paid higher rates of return than savings accounts did. At one time, banks were really scared of computers because of the idea they could maintain ledgers faster than the old, you know, the the bank employees themselves could. And the banks always managed to adapt to those uh, kinds of environments. So my belief is, and what I tried to do at the OCC, is to make sure that banks understand what's coming, that they understand that DeFi and other crypto projects are competing for the same kind of financial services banks typically serve, and to adapt, right? Banks have the customers. They are, as you know, the bank robber once said, where the money is. They have an ability to succeed in this environment if instead of resisting it, they understand it and adapt to it. And I think that's very doable.
4: Brian, you've been in this role for really a number of weeks now, right? It's a pretty new job, but also what, I'm wondering what your most immediate plans for expansion are uh, to improve customer service, get past regulators and ultimately get ready for a potential public listing.
3: Well, Sonali, that that is a great question. And the first thing you do anytime you step into a job like that is think about what are the four things I need to do to make this company a wild success. So the first thing is um, we're not going to get around or evade or, or you know otherwise get by regulators. As, as you say, what we're going to try and be is the most transparent partner to regulators we can possibly be. So we're going to be in plain sight. Everything we do is going to be well described and well disclosed. And I'd start with that. But in terms of the other things we need to do to be successful, the first thing is we need to grow our exchange business. And that means making sure we serve all 50 states, New York and Texas and the other states we're not in need to be added to our list. And we'll get there by the end of the year is our, is our plan. The second thing we need to make sure we're doing is bringing as many assets to market as people find valuable. And right now you can buy 54, 55, 56 uh, assets on our exchange. But I think there are easily 65 or 70 that are legal and that people find valuable that need to be added to our platform. So you'll be seeing us adding assets starting next week, two or three a week for the next several weeks as soon as they pass our, our listing process. And that will allow us to grow. The third thing we need to do is we need to transition uh, Sonali from being an exchange to being a product company. If you think about it, you know in the early days of the internet, there was AOL who offered little more than a portal and email, and then along came Google and figured out all of the valuable products that could be added to the internet. We're gonna do that for crypto in, in a whole bunch of ways that you'll hear about in the coming months. And then finally, we need to you know, enrich the financial ecosystem in which crypto exists, and that means finding US compliant ways of bringing derivatives to market. We need to work with our partners yeah. to make sure that a Bitcoin ETF eventually does come out because it's safer and it's better disclosed and easier for people to access than primary products that exist today. And I expect it will be the portal for a lot of those innovations. So at the end of yeah. the day,
2: it's adding assets, it's adding states, it's being
3: more useful to people.
2: And we got some more perspective on investing in the crypto space with Elise Colleen, who is the founding managing partner at Stillmark, the first Bitcoin specific venture capital firm. And we started by asking Elise about how people want to do other things with cryptocurrencies, like say, for example, buy NFTs. And we asked her if this will all eventually be done via Bitcoin and why isn't it being done via Bitcoin right now?
1: Well, sure. Well, first, thank you for having me, Joe. We do. I expect that all of what we're seeing find popularity in other spaces and other protocols will migrate um, or at least be represented in a Bitcoin environment as well. And we're already seeing that today. So, for instance, if you'd like to do NFTs on Bitcoin, you can, in fact, do that with Blockstream's um, sidechain, Bitcoin sidechain called Liquid Network. So it, it, it's not just NFTs. So my expectation is that developers will sort of observe the activity that gains popularity and adoption in other protocol spaces and then will find ways to represent that in a Bitcoin environment. Because, of course, in Bitcoin, the advantage is the network effect as well as the security and stability that uh, differentiate this network.
5: Let's go back to basics for a minute, Elise. And... So smart contracts were really where it was at when it came to Ethereum. They've obviously had scaling issues to a certain degree, but we've seen other protocols, other underlying crypto born. Why hasn't it thus far got really popular to do some Mm. sort of smart contracts across the Bitcoin protocol?
1: That's right. So, well, first we should start off by remembering that Bitcoin has always had smart contracting capabilities. So when you transact, Bitcoin is programmable money. And so you've always been able to require multiple signatures, for example, in a transaction, or to require that a certain amount of time or a certain date pass before a transaction is triggered. And what, and Bitcoin has um, slowly but surely been advancing um, more sort of multiplex smart contracting capabilities. But in a Bitcoin development environment, what's most important, first and foremost, is that the environment is secure and stable. And so what that means is that, or the benefit of that, is that Bitcoin has never seen a breach or a hack at the core protocol level. We've also seen very limited downtime. So in the past sort of over a decade that Bitcoin has been in existence, we've had something like 12 hours of downtime. And of course, that's of critical importance when we're talking about a financial technology that holds billions of dollars of wealth. Um, you know for folks across the socioeconomic um, status spectrum we the developers in the space and the founders building on top of Bitcoin Score protocol and mm. higher layers right. take all that very seriously and optimize for that first all right so, so I mean means is that function like smart contracts tends to trail um, but but it certainly yeah. catches up
4: so okay so at least then when we get into sort of the broader issues here of Uh, decentralized finance or whatever we're calling it these days, I mean, you talk about the safety and security. Obviously, trust is a big part of this. In order for that to function, in order for that to operate, at least as it's being pitched by a lot of the true believers out there, uh, you have to have that. Is there a general sense here that while we haven't had these breaches yet at the protocol level here, that what's being built and the interconnectedness of it will be secure enough and trustworthy enough that we can sort of move to whatever the next thing this is going to be?
1: Right. That's exactly right. So that's happening now. So, for example, we just had something called Taproot, uh, a Bitcoin core protocol level advancement activate, uh, or excuse me, lock in, and that will activate in November. And something that Taproot enables is sort of a more efficient connection between higher layer protocols built on Bitcoin and the core protocol itself. And so that creates efficiencies for the end users of Bitcoin's um, payment protocol, Lightning Network. And there's an interesting sort of auspicious convergence of trends happening here, right? Which is that the advancements happening with Bitcoin protocols um, further enable use of Lightning Network, so the payments network. At the same time as we're seeing emerging markets begin to adopt Bitcoin through the Lightning Network or these payment networks. And I expect, in fact, that when we see emerging markets adopt Bitcoin, it will not be through Bitcoin, the core protocol, but through these higher layer networks with lightning leading. And so it's exciting to me to see um, e- technology advancements that sort of create increased privacy and efficiency and functionality at that level.
2: Real quickly, we just have a few seconds left. Obviously, um, you know, there's so much money being thrown at other protocols, cash, VC money, et cetera. Does that make it hard to attract developers? Does it cause a uh, sort of talent challenge?
1: So I don't think so. So what we're seeing exactly is that folks are using, the, the top talent are using other protocols as sort of test nets. And so they're exploring projects and even sometimes seeking funding there and then moving over to Bitcoin as the programming language um, advances at, mm. at the, in the Bitcoin field. And so i expect we'll see that continue and we we can't forget that adoption is really accelerating for bitcoin in fact the pace of adoption with bitcoin is exceeding a similar stage um, for the internet so we're seeing a quicker pace of adoption and developers tend to follow the best developers tend to follow opportunity Mm. and want to build in a way um, that allows their work to have long-term impact
0: Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and
2: NYSE. And then we switched gears and got a check on the housing market. Tremendous demand has sent building materials surging, as we've talked about. Lumber skyrocketed earlier this year, but now it's rolling over and it's erased a lot of those gains. But the same can't be said for all of the other materials that home builders need to buy. We spoke about this with Rick Palacios Jr., Principal and Director of Research at the John Burns Real Estate Consulting Firm, who just came out with a survey detailing how everything from windows to dishwashers are impossible to find. And Rick told us why it's only getting worse, why it could take six months to get a garage door. No, it's it's
6: not easy. And I think you guys were touching on lumber. So lumber definitely has come off, but that's been a bit of a relief, but it's really pick your poison on all the other input costs and supply bottlenecks and shortages and lead time delays. And so you know, we survey almost 300 builders every single month. We just published our survey for June results. And that, I mean, that was the overwhelming takeaway is that we are still having just a lot of issues here i mean i was talking to a builder yesterday the lead time on garage doors believe it or not usually 45 days has stretched to six months so that may be the extreme i think that's that's just a little bit of a flavor for what builders are having to deal with i mean it's not a Never been an easy industry, but it's it's even tougher right now.
4: I'm curious. So, what do they do? I mean, do they sort of wait till they get all of these uh, components, the doors and the trim and everything else, and then start the construction, or are they just going to go, go uh, along as they can and then you know you know pop whatever in when once they get it?
6: Yeah. So so builders are are very scrappy and they are they are slowly starting to to figure this out. I mean, one of the ways appliances has been a headache, massive headache throughout all of this. And I've heard some builders where they are just buying them in bulk way ahead of when they usually need them and then just warehousing them so that when they need them, they're close by and they could just pop them into the home. So, I mean, these are some of the things that builders are doing. I think the other thing, too, because the lead times are so unpredictable, the cost creep is so consistent they're starting to price homes later in the construction cycle Mm. once some of the bigger components have hit and they've got some you know, guardrails around the big parts of what actually matters for pricing a home. And then they'll go to price the home versus day one. And so that allows them to capture not only the, the price appreciation throughout, but really price the homes accordingly. But then also just like put your consumer hat on to have to go to a consumer and tell them, hey, Mm. we're pushing out the delivery on your home two months, three months, four months. That that is not an easy conversation. So it is a win-win for both the builder as well as being able to have some consistent timelines for the consumer buying that home.
5: What about consistent prices and how much are the builders worried about a buyer's strike? Because, Mm. I mean, just anecdotally, like we've just bought a house and we were able to push back on the price because the builder was in a bit of a bind because they're still building other houses and they need the money to be able to, to put up for the rest.
6: Yeah, so, so we're starting to hear a rumbling of a buyer pushback. I would, st- I would say though, the market is still really strong. I mean, buyers, builders are having to go a little bit deeper into their buyer lists, their qualified buyer lists, sometimes creating new interest lists from scratch because yeah, home prices per our survey on the new home side were up 20% year over year in June construction costs and this is labor and materials for builders up nationally 22% year over year so the the pricing situation has gotten pretty tough and we've started to hear more builders say hey we're starting to touch or scratch the surface on this kind of price ceiling that we've all feared recently
2: Talk a little bit more about the builder response from a planning perspective. You mentioned that pricing is now frequently done later in the cycle. So the builder has more uh, visibility, can capture some of that. How else does this uncertainty, six months to get a uh, garage door, how else uh, is it affecting the planning of the home builders as they look at, you know, say the rest of the year and uh, 2022?
6: Yeah, I, I think 2021 is just going to be a very, rough year in terms of predictability for for the builders. But there's there's this saying, you know, time heals all wounds. And I think that that is gonna be a big um, solver here is that over time, some of these issues should just resolve themselves. And Mm. so for us, that's probably not a 2021 story. It's probably more of a 2022 story because I mean, really every industry across the board is trying to do I mean, basically the same thing. Demand has snapped back. They don't have the supply and people are just scrambling, trying to figure it all out. And it is going to take time for all that stuff to resolve itself.
4: With regards to some of the structural shifts that we've been seeing in demand, Rick, I mean, the idea here is that even though prices have gone up, even though lead times on getting a home built uh, have gone up here, it doesn't seem to have scared away buyers, at least not enough in mass that it's had a, a significant effect at all.
6: No, I mean, one of the things that we track in our survey every month is cancellation rates. So buyers that are canceling, I mean, cancellations are basically nil right mm. now. And if a buyer canceled, builder can say, okay, I'm going to take this house and now I can hand it to another buyer and actually I can probably raise the price versus what this, this buyer had initially. Um, traffic ratings are still healthy. You know, I, I think one of the things that we all forgot about in the nuttiness of you know peak housing insanity during COVID when really all we could do was think about our home and maybe wanna improve our home or buy a home, right? So the, that, that kind of captive audience, I touched on this last time we spoke a few months ago for housing has started to kind of come off a bit and there's now some seasonality to housing. It is June we're going into summer and there was no seasonality in housing last year. I mean, all the way through housing was top of mind and we saw it in all the numbers And so now people are actually taking vacations, getting out and seeing the world, doing some fun stuff. Like that's a a good thing. I think we all Hmm. need that. And you're gonna see it in the housing numbers and we're seeing it in the sales numbers too, particularly.
5: Although there was a rush to get your home ready for school starts in September, ready for your new office start. But as you suddenly get more clarity on whether you're coming back, how much is the buyer gonna be, well, Companies that want to buy and then rent out as well, because all I can see is rental mm. prices going ever northwards.
6: Yeah, so it is very unique. So I mean, we we touch on the research side, all of housing, whole housing ecosystem, for sale, for rent, and it's a very unique backdrop where you've got the for sale side of housing just firing on all cylinders. A bit of buyer hesitancy, pushback on price, like we talked about. But on the rental side, and we're very close to the single family rental part of the world, build for rent as well. I mean that space is red hot and i i tweeted out something earlier today for the first time we actually survey. so we do a survey of building product manufacturers and distributors every month and for the first time we tucked in a category for them to tell us hey tell us about demand from some of these groups that are building rental communities single family rental communities and that was the strongest part of demand for them mm. so that tells you how there's there's these other categories now that are programmatically building homes wow that are taking up
2: some of the supply, too. And we finished this week by diving into Beijing's crackdown on its tech sector and foreign listings, we asked what it means for investing in the space with Ram Parameswaran, the founder of Octahedron Capital Management. We started by asking Ram, who's been very consistently bullish on the Chinese tech sector, if what we've seen with Didi since its IPO has changed his view at all about the tech investing opportunity in China.
7: Well, Joe, thank you for having me. Um, yeah, listen, you know, it's all about observing facts and the facts do not prove to be warm and fuzzy right now. So we've been uh, thinking a lot about, you know, how do we position ourselves? Uh, we're still very bullish on the fundamental Chinese consumer and fundamentally on China. But we've come to the conclusion that, um, you know, not everything is made equal. And what's happening now, in my opinion, is uh, a, a bit of a stock picker's dream because if you can start distinguishing between companies that actually have actually have structural issues, like DD in this chart you have right now, or a couple of other kind of like more narrower areas like education, um we're but because the entire world is now completely severed on China and internally there's a lot of like uh tension within companies in China as well, based on our conversations. Um my belief is if we can correctly identify the winners and losers, either sectors or specific companies, this actually may be a phenomenal time to invest Mm. in China again Mm. on a longer term horizon. So that's where we are right now.
5: Are the winners and losers primarily going to be dictated by the government from your perspective or something different? How much of a surprise, if ever, is it when they weigh in like this?
7: You know, this thing was a real surprise. This was a doozy. Uh, I don't think anybody expected this, and we did not expect it for sure. Uh, you got to understand that, you know, the focus on regulation has been an ongoing process for almost two and a half years now. But, you know, as we all know, when the event hits, you know, stocks are never perfectly priced in. So, you know, again, I think we're now in a new regime. I think we had to recognize we're in a new regime because over the last 15 years, Chinese companies have, you know, taken advantage of Western expertise and Western capital, and now there is a belief that China is relatively self-sufficient. So they wanna have their destiny mm. in their own hands as, as you would have it. So I think the way you wanna think about this is, this is a new normal. Yeah. Uh, companies will have to be much more transparent with their data sharing back to the government. Companies will have to, uh, in quotes, kiss the ring in many ways. They have to be cognizant of their actions on people. And they have to make sure that they, they focus on productivity of. Uh, the country, they focus on national strength and the well being of consumers. And yeah. if you can do those three things, then you have a real business that will not be in the eye of Beijing. And if you don't, and if you behave badly, you are. Yeah. You will be regulated and your profit potential will be curtailed. Well, so it's am, a new normal.
4: Yeah. Well, I'm curious, Ram, when you talk about the idea of self-sufficiency here, I mean, one of the reasons why we were seeing these IPOs in the U.S. here, whether it was from DD or Ding Dong or any of these other stocks, it was the idea that a lot of these companies needed the capital in order to expand here. And there was a reason why they were looking outside of China. I am curious is if that need for capital is still there, is there Do we have a sense that they're going to be able to find it in China, in Hong Kong, in that Asia region?
7: Yeah, I think there will be – there's plenty of access in China. And the reality is even if they don't get access to China via the ADR market in the U.S., many of us are set up to trade Hong Kong. So the capital will find – ultimately, capitalism wins, is my opinion. And, yeah, it's just a function of how they find it. You know, do we have to keep our capital onshore in Hong Kong and invest in a Hong Kong IPO? Uh, Or will it be easy? The ADR is just a frictionless way to buy in a Chinese company via the VIE structure. And so my sense is the capital will still find its way into Chinese companies. This is only a question of, you know, how much control the Chinese government wants to have over Western capital and their national champions.
2: So obviously, you know, this this concern is about what big companies can do with data and whether um, the interests of large companies uh, are in line with uh, Beijing's priorities. You hear rumblings about it too, and we, you know, in the U.S. I mean, and there are obviously uh, people are always lawsuits being filed against the big companies here for various reasons. The actions aren't as extreme or aren't as fast, but of course we know the political winds, at least in D.C., have changed. Is there any uh, concern? Do you think there will be a further escalation of that in the U.S. towards U.S. champions, or you know, are the the fangs, so to speak, or is it just going to be a lot of sort of like? lawsuits, another talk that doesn't really go anywhere?
7: Um, it's tough to say what's going to happen in the US. I, I would assume it'll be a lot more noise. And maybe there is some, again, it's, again, these are all difficult questions to answer. Right. And Joe, I think it, I've come in a previous podcast of, basically my conclusion is just pragmatic, which is all this reflects in lower multiples. So if you are an investor in Chinese companies, you're an investor in a larger company that could be in the purview of antitrust assume at least we're assuming for now that the go-go days of high multiples are kind of done we just have to be much more sober and therefore entry prices matter but if you're disciplined on entry prices and you kind of have a view that in the longer term the business fundamentals remain okay and you can make a good irr uh even under sober expectations you know three or four years out then I think there are really good investable businesses right now, even in China. And we are taking advantage of it.
5: Ram, how are you taking advantage of it? If i were mean, just looking at a chart of ByteDance there, now, you know, whisperings that it's going to be delaying its initial mm. public offering, likely not to, to be looking at the US market in the near term. How do you play getting into China at this moment?
7: Well, on the private markets, as long as, the, as, long as we have some belief that the company will list in Hong Kong, within a reasonable time frame, which is typically one to three years. No, we can just invest in those companies. Mm. And again, uh, it's just a Hong Kong ADR versus a China ADR, sorry, a US ADR. So that's trivial, like you, you can totally do that. The challenge right now with the public markets are, the stock, the stocks are just fundamentally cheap on an absolute and relative basis. There's no argument there. The question is, when does this cloud clear? And it's so driven by announcements and media and sentiment changes. And for the average portfolio manager, I, I, can, I can see why nobody wants to touch China right now because it's a bit toxic. And so, you know, again, the hard part is, it. I think China may be dead money for the foreseeable future uh, till this kind of cloud clears and then fundamentals come back. People move earnings to next year. Companies keep executing quarter after quarter for the next few quarters. And then the confidence comes back. And at some point, you know, these stocks come back as well. Now, I've been through China peak pain many times in my career. Each time is different. And so, and that's the beauty of investing in China. This time it's peak pain again. We feel it, uh, but it's different. And so we just have to figure out, you know, when this cloud passes.
2: And that's it for what you missed this week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.
0: I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, your hero is in conversation with business icons. This show will explore dealmaking across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business.
1: Sports is and not as simple you know, I... as bringing a bunch of big names together. I
0: didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast and watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV Plus. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world.